for us this morning, if you've got your Bibles, I hope that you do, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you don't have a Bible, there's a hardback black Bible under the chair, underneath you or in front of you, you can grab one of those, and if you're using that one, we're going to be on page 961 this morning. This portion of the Bible that we're going to be hanging out in today is known as the book of 1 Corinthians, but in truth, it's not really a book at all. It's actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, a city that's located in south-central Greece, about 48 miles due west of Athens. Paul had planted that church there in Corinth himself, probably around 49 or 50 AD. The book of Acts chapter 18 tells us the story of that. It tells us how Paul went during his second missionary journey, and he spent about 18 months there in Corinth working to build that church, and then he moved on. But after he moved on, that early church got kind of messy. There were all kinds of problems. Other leaders had come into the church and started to factionalize around different leaders in the church, and so they had problems like social cliques and drunkenness at church and notorious one notorious case of immorality and public lawsuits between members of the church. That early church there in Corinth was an absolute mess, and so Paul wrote a letter to them addressing those problems. Now, we don't actually have that letter. That's not this letter. That letter is sometimes called the previous letter based on how Paul references it in this letter. But in response to the previous letter, the Corinthian church sent a letter of their own back to Paul asking some questions. And what we're looking at today, the letter we call 1 Corinthians, is Paul's response to those questions along with some problems that he'd heard reports about in that church. But what we should keep in mind as we're reading this letter is that he's writing it to correct a church that's lost track of what's most important. And so Paul is working to help them remember what's essential and what's not. And as we come to chapter 15, Paul is zooming in on the foundation of our faith and the hope of the gospel. He's zooming in on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. The Bible says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Can we pray? Father, as we look at this passage of scripture this morning, 
As we gather to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, would you help us to remember just how significant it is? Would you help us to recognize the price that had to be paid for our sin, but also that that price has been paid and now we don't have to walk in shame We don't have to walk in fear and regret. We can confess our sin. We can repent of our sin. We can find hope and life in Jesus because of what he did at Calvary for us. So Father, I ask that you would help us to see that in this passage of scripture this morning. And I ask that if there's somebody here today who has never taken that step of faith, who's never repented of their sin, they've never placed their hope in Jesus, Father, I ask that today would be the day where they would begin a new life, a life of pursuing Christ, a life of living for you in that joy and freedom and hope that is found only in you. Be at work in us today. Father, I ask that you would remove any distractions that might come to mind as we're studying your word together and that you would speak to each and every one of us. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. I think most of you know that I'm a retired naval flight officer, and and you know that because of that, before I came here, my job was flying in the F-18s, launching off the front end of aircraft carriers, and getting to do a lot of really cool things. Now, those of you who know me well know that that doesn't make me cool. In fact, I'm kind of a big nerd. I just had the opportunity to do some really cool things. And one of those cool things that I got to do happened when I was a junior officer. I was deployed on the USS Nimitz at the time, and I was given the opportunity to go fly with our helicopter squadron in one of our SH-60s. But as I was talking to one of their pilots getting ready for that, he told me something that kind of blew my mind. You see, if you look at a helicopter, it doesn't really make sense that that thing can fly, right? Like it weighs about 15,000 pounds and it's all metal. And it doesn't have any wings to generate lift. All it's got is that rotor overhead spinning around, beating the air into submission. And so it doesn't make any sense at all that this thing can fly. But, but then as I was talking to that helo pilot, he told me something that, that just kind of made it even a little scarier. He told me that that rotor up on top that makes it fly, that that thing is connected by one single nut. They call it the Jesus nut. And they call it the Jesus nut because if that nut comes loose, you and everyone else in the aircraft are going to meet Jesus. That's what they call it. One part and without it, everything's over. You've got this incredibly complex machine and one single little piece, if it's missing, everything falls apart. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. And the reason I tell you that this morning is because as we're looking here at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is telling us that when it comes to our faith, when it comes to our salvation, there's one key truth that we cannot abandon. There's one key truth that without it, everything falls apart. And that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we're looking at these 11 verses right here in 1 Corinthians, Paul's main idea, the main idea that he wants us to walk away with is that our salvation is secured by the resurrection of Jesus. Without the resurrection, everything falls apart. 
It's the essential truth that we cannot forget. And that's what we're seeing here in this passage. Now, if you're visiting with us today, I like to have one main idea, one thought for you to chew on and meditate over as you walk out the door. And this is that thought. Our salvation is secured by the resurrection of Jesus. This truth is the reason why we've gathered to celebrate Easter today. This is the linchpin of our hope. It's the security of our salvation. We need to remember the resurrection. And Paul is telling us that in these 11 verses. So let me show you that now. As Paul begins this section of the letter, he begins by pressing us first to remember the gospel. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. As Paul begins, he begins by pressing the church to remember how it all started for them. Because it all started with the gospel. It all started when they found that hope. They heard that good news in that first time and it, it took hold. Somehow, it seems, they'd lost track of that. Somehow, they'd forgotten that hope. And so Paul's reminding them to remember the gospel. But if you really think about it, this is kind of an awkward reminder, isn't it? Like Paul is telling this group of Christians to remember something that they should never have forgotten in the first place. But apparently they had, which is why the reminder is here. And as we see that, as we see Paul telling this early church that, I can't help but wonder, do we need this reminder too? I mean, if the early church could have experienced everything that they experienced, think about the, the miracles and the signs that are reported all throughout the book of Acts. If, if the early church could have experienced all of that and needed this reminder here, is it possible that we need it too? Does this happen to us? Do we forget the gospel? Now, I'm not talking about the historical facts. I'm not talking about the events that happened in history that made salvation possible. No, I'm talking about that moment where if you're a Christian, you experience the gospel in your life personally. I'm talking about that experience where at some point someone shared the gospel with you. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit worked in your heart to convict you of your sin. And so you repented of your sin and you placed your faith in Jesus and his finished work. And in that moment, for the very first time, you knew that hope and life and freedom that comes when you've been reconciled to God. Have you forgotten what it means to have experienced the gospel? Has your faith transformed into outward ritual and religion? More about the things you do or don't do than about the experience of being reconciled to your creator. Have you forgotten what it was like when you experienced, truly experienced the gospel? Because that's what Paul is pressing this church to remember. Even before he explains the gospel itself, he's pressing them to remember that here. Look at how he says this. There in verse one, he says, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. He wants them to remember the gospel, but more than just remembering the information, he wants them to remember the experience. 
He's pointing them to remember an event that happened. He preached, they received. He proclaimed, they repented of their sin and placed their hope in Jesus and they were transformed. He wants them to remember how the gospel had changed their lives in the past. But more than just that, he wants them to remember how it sustains them in the present too. He says, I want you to remember the gospel in which you stand. Do you see Paul's transition to the present here? When we experience the hope of the gospel, it's more than just an event in the past. It's an active thing in our lives today in the present too. The hope that we found when we first encountered the gospel isn't something that we experience this one time and then we move on to bigger and better things. When we experience challenges and setbacks, we need a sustaining hope. And that's what we find in the gospel. When life gets hard, we have to remember the reality of what has already been accomplished in our lives. Like when we sin and we will, the gospel reminds us that we don't have to be trapped in that. We don't have to be defined by that failure. We can repent of that sin. We can find hope. And as we walk in that hope, Paul says we are being saved. We are being shaped more into the image, into the likeness of Christ. And so what Paul is pressing us to remember is the gospel in all aspects of it, the whole way it works in you. Remember the good news that transformed your life, that's sustaining your life, that's shaping your life, and live in that. Remember the gospel. Because if, if you don't, whatever you think you've placed your faith in, whatever you think you've believed, you've believed in vain. It was meaningless. That's what Paul is saying there in the second half of verse two, when he says, if you hold fast to the word, I preach to you. The gospel, I preach to you. Unless you believed in vain. The gospel that Paul preached is the only true gospel. If you believed anything else, if you deviate from the gospel that Paul preached, then you believed in vain. Your belief was pointless. Now, that's something that we don't like to talk about in our day and age, is it? In our modern, enlightened American perspective, we don't want to be exclusive. We want to be inclusive. We want to think that there are many ways to God. There are many paths to God. But what we're being reminded of here is that the gospel is exclusive. There aren't many ways. There's one way. There's only one way to the Father. There's only one way to have your sins forgiven. There's only one way to be reconciled to God. And if you're putting your hope in any other way, whether that's good works or karma or new age spirituality, you name it. If you're putting your hope in any other way to salvation than through Christ Jesus, then your hope is pointless because there's only one gospel. And as Paul continues here in the text, he actually explains that gospel again. And as we see this, we're going to see that the foundation of the gospel is the resurrection. Take a look, starting at verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, really quick, as Paul says that, you've got to see his emphasis here. 
As he's saying that, he's saying that of everything I've taught you, of everything I've ever written or said to you, of all of it, this comes first. This and this alone is what's most important. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now that's the gospel right there. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he rose in victory over sin and death, and he was seen by the more than 500 people. That's the bare bones, good news of the gospel. But as Paul explains the gospel here, I want you to see how he makes two big claims and then backs them up with evidence. First, he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And second, he says, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Those are the two big claims of the gospel. And as Paul makes them, he supports them with evidence. So he says, Christ died. And the evidence that Christ died is that he was buried. Why is that the evidence? Because you only bury dead people, right? Like Christ was actually dead. So they buried him. That's the evidence. But he was raised on the third day. And the evidence that he was raised on the third day is the overwhelming number of people who saw him alive. That's how he structures this. So Paul begins there in verse 3 by saying Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, the fact that Jesus died is not really noteworthy. Everybody dies. Lots and lots of people, all of us, every single one of us dies. The fact that Jesus died isn't noteworthy. What's noteworthy is that Jesus died for our sins. There was a reason that Jesus died. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. He died to fix our sin problem. And this is where we've just got to stop for a minute and talk. Because the reality is, I don't think we recognize just how serious our sin problem is. When we talk about sin, especially when we're talking about our own sin, have you noticed how we tend to downplay it? We, we do this all the time. I find myself doing this all the time. When I talk about my sin, instead of calling it what it is, rebellion against a sovereign God, instead of calling it that, we call it falling short. We call it failing. We call it not living up to God's standard. We, we call it missing the mark. And while our sin is all of those things, when we characterize our sin just like that, we're avoiding what it actually is. Our sin is evil rebellion against our good and sovereign God. But we don't like to deal with that. So we minimize. We try to convince ourselves that our sin is no big deal. But when we do that, when we minimize our sin, when we brush it off, when we consider it as, oh, that's not that big a deal. When we're doing that, we're not fooling God. We're only deceiving ourselves. God knows how significant our sin is. We're, we can't fool him in this. 
And so it's important for us to recognize the significance and the seriousness of our sin. Because God has told us that our sin is a problem. The Bible is clear on this. You cannot read your Bible and not recognize that sin is a problem. The Bible says that the wages of sin, what our sin earns us, is death. You see, our God is holy and righteous and just. His holiness and his righteousness cannot abide sin in his presence. And so our sin, it separates us from God. But God's righteousness and his justice demands that a penalty be paid for our sin. Our sin incurs the wrath of God. Rightly so. It demands death. But the good news of the gospel, what Paul is telling us right here in this text is that God sent his son who put on flesh and lived among us. He was like us. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be betrayed. He knew everything about what it was like to be us. But he was without sin. And he suffered and died on that cross for our sin in our place to reconcile us to God. When Paul says that Jesus died for our sins, that's what he means. He means Jesus died in our place. Jesus suffered on the cross for your sin. Do you realize that? Like Jesus, when he was up on that cross, it should have been me. It should have been you on that cross, but it was him. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die to satisfy the penalty for our sin. All of this is wrapped up in that statement, Christ died for our sins. But he didn't stay dead. He was buried. But then verse 4 tells us that he was raised on the third day. Now, if you're like me, when I was little, I, I used to look at the, the calendar and I said, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, shouldn't the third day be Monday? That's not how they counted days. The day that Jesus died was the first day. Saturday was the second. Sunday was the third. He was raised on the third day. And this is the foundation of our hope in the gospel. Because while Jesus' suffering and death on the cross was the penalty for, or the payment for our sin, the resurrection was God's acceptance of that payment. Romans 4.25 tells us that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. Jesus hung on that cross for our sins. But Romans 4.25 continues and says, and he was raised for our justification. He was raised to life for our salvation, for our right standing with God. You see, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And as he did, he was giving his stamp of approval on Jesus' saving work. He approved of his suffering and death on the cross for our sins. He accepted Christ's payment on our behalf. In the resurrection, God the Father was saying that Jesus' work was complete. There was no more penalty for sin to be paid. There was no more wrath of God to bear. There was no more punishment for guilt. It was all complete. God the Father was saying that Jesus' work was finished and that he no longer had any need to stay dead. That's why the resurrection matters. That's why it's so important 
That's why the foundation of the gospel is the resurrection. Because without it, there's no good news here. The payment wasn't received, but in the resurrection, God throws his stamp of approval and says, I accept this payment. But in all of this, I want you to see that this happened in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus's death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day wasn't just the last attempt in a string of efforts to try and reconcile sinners to God. No, this was the plan from the very beginning. All the way back in Genesis, in chapter three, just after Adam sinned, we get the first prophecy concerning Jesus. There in Genesis 3.15, as God cursed the serpent, he said to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Theologians who are way smarter than me, they call this the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, the first good news. The promise was that one day Adam's offspring would crush Satan's head. And what we see at Calvary is that Satan struck out at Christ's heel. When he nailed him to that cross, he thought he was victorious. As they rolled that stone in front of the tomb, Satan thought that he had won, but Jesus overcame sin and death, crushing Satan's head. You see, the very first prophecy in the entire Bible was fulfilled by Jesus's death and resurrection. But it's not just that one. There are many more. God promised to bless Abraham and that in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who came to be known as Israel. And Jesus is descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, God blessed all the families of the earth through Abraham, through Jesus. And as God brought his people out of Egypt God commanded that the death of a spotless lamb should be part of Israel's rescue from slavery. This in turn became part of the sacrificial system in which animals bore the sins of the people on the day of atonement as they worshiped and and gave offerings for the forgiveness of their sins every year. But all of that was meant to point to Jesus. You see Isaiah in in chapter 53 of of Isaiah, the prophet, he gave one of the most detailed descriptions of Jesus's saving work. 700 years before it actually happened. And, And what he does is Isaiah connects that sacrificial system to the Messiah who would come to be the once for all sacrifice. In Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus is described like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And then Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. At Calvary, Jesus was the once for all perfect spotless lamb who shed his blood to pay the price for our sin to reconcile us to God. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Those are the two big claims of the gospel right here. But as Paul makes those claims, did you notice the emphasis in verses three through eight? 
It's overwhelmingly on the resurrection. That's on purpose. The proof proof of Jesus' death was that they buried him. But the proof of Jesus' resurrection is that he appeared to hundreds of people. Look at those verses one more time, starting in verse 5. Paul says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Jesus appeared. It's not just, I think I saw him. They saw him. They saw him alive. And he'd been seen by so many people that it was undeniable. If the the readers of this letter didn't believe Paul's message, there were hundreds of people who were still alive that they could go and ask, did you see it? Yes, I saw it. This was a verifiable event. Paul goes out of his way to help us see that the resurrection of Jesus happened. And the reason he does that is because that's the foundation of the gospel. The foundation of the gospel is the resurrection. It was God the Father's stamp of approval on Jesus' saving work. But as Paul closes out this section of the letter, after giving that long list of eyewitnesses to the resurrection, he pivots and he begins to talk about himself. There in verse 8, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, the way that Paul does that, the way he says that there, and the way he describes himself in verses 9 and 10, it almost feels like Paul is like putting up this false front of, of like, look how humble I am. And I get that when you, when you read that, but, but I don't think that's what's happening here. No, I think what Paul is doing here is he's using his own life story as an object lesson to remind us that the resurrection brings new life. So look at verses 8 through 10, just one last time with me. Paul writes, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, as we look at all of that, it'll help us to understand that that Greek word that's translated there as untimely born in verse 8, it actually means a birth that violates the normal period of gestation, which is a really long way to say he was way overdue. He was born late. That's what he's saying right there. And really, when you think about it, that's how Paul came on the Christian scene. Christ's appearance to Paul was later than all the others. Paul says, last of all. And it happened only after a prolonged period of opposition on Paul's part. So when Paul says there in verse 9, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's not false humility right there. That's history. Paul was an enemy of the church. He persecuted the church. He was throwing Christians in prison. He was killing Christians. But more than being an enemy of the church, he was an enemy of God. When he encountered Jesus after the resurrection, there on that road to Damascus, what did Jesus say to him? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus, or Paul was an enemy of God himself. He thought he was fighting for God. He was actually fighting against God. And it's clear that Paul isn't trying to hide any of this. Paul isn't trying to hide his ugly past. In fact, he's capitalizing on his sinful past in order to exalt the grace of God at work in his own life. Paul is telling us that when he had that encounter with Jesus, when he met the resurrected Lord and he learned the truth of the gospel, when he repented of his sin and he began to follow Jesus, when that happened, Jesus brought new life to Paul. Where once he had been an enemy of Christ, he became a champion for Christ. There in verse 10, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. In spite of his sinfulness and rebellion toward God, in spite of his rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and Christ, in spite of his active efforts against Jesus and against Jesus's mission, in spite of all of that, Paul has been used by God. And this is huge because this has implications for us. What we're seeing here is that God saves his enemies and then uses them for his purposes. God doesn't just save his friends. God doesn't just save good people. God saves his enemies. God saves messy, broken, hopeless people, and he gives them new life. The gospel radically changed Paul's life. Like it set him on a whole new course. The gospel radically changed my life. Like if you don't believe me, ask my wife. She will tell you, I am not the same man she married over 20 years ago. And the gospel can change your life too. What we're celebrating today, the resurrection of Jesus, it has implications for every single one of us because the resurrection brings new life. And so if you're here today and you've never experienced this, if you've never experienced the gospel, if you've never had that experience that I was talking about a few moments ago, where you experience the hope and joy and freedom that comes when you repent of your sin, when you place your faith in Jesus, when you're reconciled to God, if you've never had the new life experience that the resurrection brings, today I want you to know that it is available. You don't have to be weighed down by past failures, past sin, past regret and shame. You can bring all of that to Jesus. You can take your ugly, sinful past to Jesus and give it to him and he can make it beautiful. You can know and be known by God. The gospel message is simple. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to all those people to bring life and forgiveness and reconciliation with God. To bring salvation to all who will repent and believe. 
And that's what we're here to celebrate today. We're here to celebrate the good news of the gospel, that salvation is available. Our salvation is secured by the resurrection of Jesus. And so today on Resurrection Sunday, we're celebrating that. All that's left for us to do is take hold of it. And so my question for you today is, is will you? Have you? Have you gotten to that point where you're ready to stop trying to do it all yourself? You're ready to hand it over to God. Let him be king of your life. That's the offer that's on the table. Salvation is available in Jesus because of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we find in 1 Corinthians. We thank you for the hope and life that are available because Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to all those people to bring life and hope and joy. Father, would you help us to remember the gospel? Would you help us to remember the life that is found in him? For those of us who have already repented of our sin, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on that hope? Because that's the hope we walk in. That's the hope that's saving us, that's shaping us more into the image of Christ. Whenever we're tempted to take our eyes off of our hope, to start putting it on other things, would you help us to keep it fixed squarely on Jesus? And to walk in that hope. Father, would you help us to live for you every single day? And Father, right now, I I lift up those who have not made that decision who've never repented of their sin, come to be in that position where they say, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life. You're king. I am going to follow you. I'm going to live for you. Father, would you bring those people into repentance? Your word makes it abundantly clear. I can't save them. They can't save themselves. They need what only you can do. So Holy Spirit, would you change hearts? Give hearts of flesh where currently there are hearts of stone.